Trinity Sunday is always the first Sunday in ordinary time. And it's, this tradition's been around for a long time. The Western Church has been doing it for about a millennia. So thanks to Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Beckett. It's kind of an interesting Sunday because like, it's the only one that celebrates an actual Christian doctrine. So some of you might be going, oh boy, I'm going to get a theology lecture here today. No, uh, that God is one substance, three persons. That's not quite where we're headed today. So uh, I'm not going to try to prove or explain the Trinity. That's not where we're going. What I am going to try to do is um, come at the communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit kind of by going through the back door. And we're going to do that by examining a different doctrine that's very closely related, and that's the Imago Dei, what it means to be made in the image of God. So when I say Imago Dei, that needs to register with you. Okay, made in the image of God, that's what he means. So here's kind of how we're going to do this. We're going to look at how God made us, and that's going to turn lead us back to who God is. So kind of backwards, but I think you can track with me. So Genesis 1, 26 to 31. And I'm going to be pulling in kind of broadly from different scriptures, but that's what we're going to be. So we're going to start at the very beginning. I didn't read the whole uh, uh, creation account, but um, we have to start at the beginning. And I cannot stress enough, cannot stress enough how important in scripture, or really any book, how something begins is important. It's really important. How it ends is important, too. Uh, any good beginning will tell you something about what's coming uh, and everything that's going to follow. So... What I want to look at this, come at this kind of uh, as a clean slate, is what's our first encounter with God in Scripture? What do we learn about this God in the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2? What do we learn? I mean, this God speaks very little. If you look at Genesis 1 through 3, he doesn't say a whole lot. But what he does do is he commands life to come into existence, and then he, he blesses it, calls it good. That's the main thing that we learn. But based off what this God commands and blesses, here are the very first things that we learn. Okay? First things that we learn. This is someone, I'm using a capital S here, in case you're wondering, someone of immense uh, intention and purpose, right? Purpose. Someone of inexhaustible, supreme creativity. I mean, just look at one genus or one phylum of an animal and examine all the incredible diversity there, and it, it's staggering. You know, that's just one thing. So inexhaustible creativity, okay? This is someone who is sovereign as an architect, as an orchestrator, as an artist, supreme, sovereign, someone who seeks to bless, right? This is an act God does at the end of every day. He blesses and says, this is good. This is someone who provides, someone powerful. I mean, his very words create worlds. Someone who promotes life and flourishing, okay? Bringing order out of chaos. It's God's specialty. Someone who creates humankind as the very pinnacle of his creative prowess, okay? And finally, not just that, someone who then invites these humans to be his divine stewards and his vice regents in this new world that he creates. So that already tells us an awful lot about God. An awful lot. Let's get into some specifics. But that had to be mentioned because I think that's the overall trajectory of where we're going. So Genesis 1.26, let us make man or let us make humankind in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, uh, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, we're privileged here to eavesdrop on an internal conversation of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us, right? Let us. Some folks speculate that this is God conversing with the angelic hosts, like uh, other divine beings in heaven. 
Uh, I don't have a particularly strong opinion on that. Regardless, it's God saying, uh, let us make humans in the divine image. That's what we need to glean from here. So all of us are utterly unique in amongst the creative order, created order. That is an intentional decision. Human beings are unique. So we look at Genesis 1 and 2, and creation has an intentional order to it. And I'll let you, I'll trust you to go back and read through it. You'll see this. There is an order and a sequence. And what it is, is it's like this rising uh, glorious symphony. So God creates light and dark and water and then land and plant life and animal life. And he blesses them and he calls them good at the end of each day. It's a very intentional progression, right? And it's an upward movement. Upward, upward, upward. Until we get to the very end and the crescendo is, it's very good. So the high point of the creation symphony is it's very good. Those words are only uttered once human beings are in the picture. That's when very good happens. So we, human beings, are the most precious, most glorious, and the most like God in all of creation. This is still true. This is still true. So human beings, us, we're the crowning glory of God's creation. We're his living icons. We're his masterpiece. This is God creating at the height of his powers, humans. So he marks us with his favor by putting a measure of his glory on us, in us. Uh, now, just to be clear, because I think this gets in interesting areas, God did not create the world or us because he was lonely, because he needed someone else around. This is sort of like that God, the codependent. Nope, nope, that's not, that's not what's going on here. God created us because he is love. God is love. That's who he is, which means his nature is to give of himself. So love is expressed towards someone, right? It's, it's outward rather than being curved inward uh, on uh, someone, which is how Luther describes sin, being curved inward. It's outward. So God creates the world with humans as the pinnacle, and we're unlike anything else in creation. And this is what makes us so special. Let us create humans in our image after our likeness, so every human being, every single human being, this is not just believers, every human being is created in the image of a Trinitarian God. Every single one. So every one of us is an image bearer. Everyone. Now sin, you know this, I'm not going to Genesis 3, but sin mars that image. So because of the fall, it, it's marred, but it is never destroyed. That's the incredible thing. Evil cannot destroy the Imago Dei in a human being. Isn't that amazing? They can obscure it. They can mar it. They can scar it. They cannot take it away. It's a little bit like, and I'm not a scientist, so I hope this is right. <laughs> um, it's like physics. Uh, matter cannot actually be destroyed by and large. It, it can change form, but it can't be obliterated. So evil cannot destroy the Imago Dei in human beings. It cannot be done. Let's get some meat, some specifics. Uh, I believe we are made in God's image in three basic ways. And this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time. Some are explicit here in Genesis. Okay. Uh, some are implicit. But uh, the rest of Scripture bears these out from Genesis to Revelation. So, three ways in which every human being is made in the image of God. First area. Um, we are offered dominion or rule. I'm going to use those synonymously. So, if I say rule, no, I mean dominion. If I say dominion... Know that I mean rule, okay? Dominion and rule. So God exercises his sovereignty, his dominion, his rule over all the creation throughout scriptures and beyond. God is sovereign, right? Beginning to end. Whole thing. So God made us 
to do the same, but in a lesser fashion. <laughs> so it's this idea. See if this is familiar. He's the owner. We're the stewards. Didn't Jesus talk about that very thing over and over? So we serve at the pleasure of our king. That should sound familiar. That's where the human story does begin. So he's the owner. We're the stewards. But we're invited to partner with God in that. But to be more specific about uh, this dominion rule piece, let me look at Genesis 1.28. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion or rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, every living thing that moves. So God begins by charging both, listen carefully, Adam and Eve. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. I want you to subdue and rule. I want you to have dominion. They are both charged with caring for this kingdom as equals. It's a little bit, uh, any Narnia fans here? I know some of you are, so don't be shy. Chronicles of Narnia, anybody? Okay, half and half, I'll take that. Um, it's where Aslan charges the Pevensey kids to rule over Narnia. He charges them to do this. He calls them sons of Adam, daughters of Eve. So they're all kings and queens, and they're charged to rule over that kingdom. So we're commissioned to, kind of first piece of dominion, is to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. So... It's just what it sounds like initially. Have children and populate this new kingdom. That may sound elementary, but let me tell you why I think this is. God has this pattern. Look in Genesis of creating an empty space and then filling it with something. He creates space, he makes space, and he fills it. So a sky is meant to have stars. Oceans are meant to have living things in them. Sabbaths are meant to be filled with rest. And the new world is waiting to be filled with humans who reflect this triumph God, okay? But that's not all. It's not just, why don't you guys have kids, crank out the kids, fill the earth. That's not it. There's work to be done too, and that's where to subdue or have dominion and rule comes in. So this is interesting. Think about this. All those jokes about work, right? Being a product of the fall. Actually, no. There is work before fall. Subdue implies some sweat equity. Interesting. There's some work to be done in this new world. There's a garden to tend to. So work is actually part of our original calling. It's part of it. Pre-fall. It's not a curse. It's supposed to be fruitful. It's supposed to be meaningful. It's supposed to be ordained. And this, this uh, work, this subduing, is a call for both men and women. It's given to both Adam and Eve. And it has that mention of uh, dominion rule over the animal world. I just want you to hear that as that's God's way of reiterating and reinforcing our special place in the created order. Uh, we're unique in that we exercise dominion and rule over creation in a way that no one else does, besides God, of course, <laughs> in the created world. So when it comes to dominion and rule, Adam and Eve are to mimic the same patterns of life and practice the same things that, that God did, that he establishes as he creates it. So if, if they're going to rule well, right, they're going to rule wisely, have dominion, uh, there's kind of three things they need to do. They need to be obedient. Right? You need to listen to God. Right? He's the one that built this world. He knows how this thing works, this machine. Um, it would be silly to try to figure out the machine without consulting the person who built it. So obedience, listening to God. Um, second piece is they got to remember they're stewards. Right? Don't try to supplant, don't try to supplant the creator. Uh, govern wisely, remember that you're a steward. Okay? Think about it. All of Jesus' parables about stewardship. Oh my goodness, so many, so many about landowners and overseers and hosts and trusting people to govern something, okay? 
Jesus talks a lot about money for the same reason. So two is remember they're stewards. And third piece is, I mean, stay in relationship with the Lord. Stay in communion with the Lord. The only way they're going to do well with dominion and rule is to be in communion in relationship with this three-person God. He's their wisdom. Uh, they shouldn't seek out life or counsel anywhere else. So they've got to be obedient to the Lord. They've got to remember their stewards, and they've got to stay in communion with the Lord. And if so, uh, dominion and rule will go well with them. We know that's not what happens, but I'm trying to establish that. So dominion and rule, that's one. We good? Give me a nod if we're good. Okay. Two, second way, the Imago Dei, which were made in the image of God. Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now we're getting more specific, okay? This is personhood. So the second way that we're made in the image of God is we have personhood. So, I mean, let's start with the obvious, okay? We have individuality. You know, we have different passions. We have different wills. We have different forms of creativity. We have volition. We have intelligence. Uh, we have different colored skin. We have different ethnicities. I mean, we're, we're individuals, right? So you are a true original. So everybody here is sort of like a prototype, if you think of it that way. Totally unique. True original. In the New Testament, uh, it says that we are God's workmanship, his masterpiece. That means his poem. So every one of you is created to do good works. So individuals, okay? That's part of having personhood. But uh, to be more accurate here to Genesis 1.27... Being a human person means you are engendered. You have a gender. So God makes you male or female. So we're engendered beings. That is part of our personhood. And this is by design. So men and women, we are supposed to reflect God in unique ways. And let me say this. Um, having two genders follows the divine pattern of creation that we see in Genesis. And I encourage you to go back and read this because you'll notice after each day or in each day, what God does is he takes these two polar opposites. They're complements, uh, light and dark, water and land, sun and moon. It is the pattern. He uses these polar opposites to complement and to complete each other in the narrative. Okay. So Adam, he just isn't complete without Eve and vice versa. Right. So complementary polar opposites, male and female. That's the divine pattern you see in Genesis 1 and 2. That's how God creates. Now, uh, yeah, this, this is a huge topic. I mean, I'm preaching on the Trinity too, so kind of makes the point. Um, a lot could be said about two genders given our culture of gender fluidity. Uh, the range of options of how someone can identify these days is dizzying. I feel like I stumble upon a new way to identify about every month. So it is certainly a deep quest for identity. It's a quest that has been, if you look at it historically, highly sexualized um, in the last few decades. But in many cases, it leads outside the bounds of these two genders that we see in the created order. So looking for who you really are, that identity, right? But without the biblical moorings, it is a difficult and painful topic, um, full of brokenness in every direction. And the church has handled it so poorly in those sentences. So we need to acknowledge that. <laughs> um, but that is another sermon. But I do want to be clear on the biblical story. In the beginning, God creates two distinct genders, male and female. 
And he does this, listen carefully, please. He does this to more fully reflect his glory. Okay? More fully reflect. It takes two to what? Make a thing go right. I could sing the song, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I'm not going to inflict that on you. It takes two to make a thing go right. This is 100% consistent with God's MO. Polar opposites that are perfect complements. So both human beings, but different. And gender is just part and parcelhood of a person in Genesis 1 and 2. It just is. So second piece, we're made in God's image. We've got dominion and rule. Second part is personhood with gender really specifically in there, part of that. Third piece, relationality. What did, I, did I make up a word? Yeah, I probably did. Uh, we're made for relationship. We're made for relationship. You know this, but I want to tease this out some. The scriptures, think about this. Man, they have so much to say about relationships. You could make, and I, maybe I will, make a really strong argument that that's really what the Bible's all about is relationships. Here's a Trinitarian God seeking after a wayward humanity and us, wayward image bearers, failing to relate to God and one another as he's calling us to do. I mean, that is the story that we see repeated over and over again. So to be made in God's image is to be more than solitary men or solitary women, even though I just said personhood. God's creative work is complete only once there's Adam and Eve, right? The first human community. That's what I want you to hear here. So that's when that very good comes, when there's community, when there's relationship, right? Remember, uh, Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. I'm going to make you a helper suitable to you. Think about this. Adam is hanging out with the God of the universe pre-fall, and yet God says it's not good for you to be alone. Adam's made for a relationship, not just this way, but this way. And Eve is as well. So there's something about the coming together, even of male and female, um, that one flesh mystery that even produces life and children. I'm not trying to prize it above anything. I'm trying to read what it means. Relationships are ordained in God's economy and they're supposed to produce life. They're supposed to be life-giving. Love is supposed to beget love. That's how it's supposed to work, right? So there's this relationship. There's community. We're wired that way. And we're wired that way because God's relational being, we'll get to that in just a sec. So we were designed... You and I for friendship. You and I were designed for connection. You and I were designed for love. We were designed for relationship. We are hard wired for it. Why has COVID been so hard on us? Because it has messed with our relationships. It has completely messed with our relationships and put a low ceiling on them in many ways. Very hard on us. Because we're wired that way. Because that's the image of God in us. So even before sin enters the picture, we were never meant to be self-sufficient. We weren't. We were never meant to be self-sufficient, even though that's kind of a point of pride for some people, right? Christians, sadly, some. Remember, uh, it's not good for man to be alone. To Adam, I'm going to make a helper fit for him. Eve. Incidentally, helper's a strong word. It's a word used of God. So before Genesis 3, when the fall comes, there's this perfect equality of shared calling and shared relationship and this shared call of Adam and Eve to subdue, to rule, to have dominion, to be fruitful, to multiply. That is for both of them. There's not a hierarchy. It's a community of equals. So the first human community, uh, it's this beautiful picture of interdependence, I guess you would say, right? 
So here's where we're going to take a little dive. Just a little bit. Not too deep. Our Trinitarian God is relational and is very big. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Here's what I mean. On a basic level, you've got the Father, Son, Holy Spirit living in communion, in loving communion with each other. Okay? Or if you prefer something more specific, look at how Jesus loves God the Father and the Gospels. Those are, those are relational things, right? We say that God is love because love involves more than just me. It involves more than one person. You can't love somebody uh, if you're on a desert island. Love means you give yourself, right? It means it's outward. And we were designed out of love. We were designed for that love. So we're meant to be in relationship with each other this way. Adam Eve shows us that. And this way. And that is where the cross comes in. So, just Jesus and me. You guys have heard me harp on this before. Like kind of Lone Ranger Christianity. That's not biblical. It just isn't. Even for Adam in communion with God, he still gave him Eve. So other people were always part of the plan. That was always part of the plan. I mean, even monks and nuns, who we think of as living very solitary lives, they live in a monastery. They live in a community. They still got to work stuff out. So just Jesus and me, that is not God's design. Neither is it uh, biblical to demand that human relationships fulfill us. Uh, we've got a word for that in the therapeutic realm. It's called codependency. Uh, it also can be idolatrous. So relationships, we can't demand that they fulfill us. So those are two extremes. Isolation, relational addiction. Those both come in after. That's the brokenness of sin. So the picture in Genesis 1 and 2, still on the relational piece, is one of healthy human interdependence of Adam and Eve, shared work, shared calling, as they remain in communion with God. That's how it looks. So we're hardwired for relationships. Relationships mark us for good or for ill. I know you got stories. I got stories. They seem to have the capacity to bless or to curse. You know what I mean? Uh, you grow up in a really good family. Uh, that can really bless you. You grow up in a terrible family. It can really mark you. Mark you. So relationships they can bless us or they can curse us so there's so many studies that have been done and again i'm no scientist but you don't have to research very far to find this about newborns and the importance of touch just human contact with mom in the early weeks and, and with dad too that's very important that connection is so important that if a child doesn't have that they literally could die and if they don't die, they can have severe attachment issues that plague them the rest of their life. That connection matters. Relationships matter. Common denominator in suicide statistics. Loneliness. Isolation. A lack of connection to other human beings. So there's an acute estrangement that breeds a culture of death. So we, we can't survive, <laughs> much less thrive without human connection. It's that line, no man's an island. No woman's matter. It's true. Let me give you a positive example. <laughs> How's that? Of what it means to be blessed. Uh, think of the people in your story where you, who you've been around. They could be a couple, talking believers, uh, who are a couple, maybe they're a family, maybe they're a church, okay, right? So it's a church community where they just really love each other. They really love each other. And they follow Jesus with all of who they are. Jude and I, uh, in our younger years in Colorado, um, were kind of 
the associate pastor kind of took us under his wing. We were, I don't know, I was 25 maybe, she was 24. Uh, they were a family of four. And they were such an, uh, their family had such a sense of life and vibrancy. And man, did they love the Lord. And they kind of brought us into that. They brought us in the middle of that, and it was so powerful. They blessed us by bringing us into that, right? They blessed us with that. So community can be powerful. Community can be alluring. It can be life-giving. I mean, that's how, that's nine times out of ten, that's how I learned about the Lord. And I wanted to follow Jesus because I got around people who are healthy in that way and vibrant and committed to the Lord. So this is what happens in Christian life. This is the promise of it. So there's a positive way. We can be blessed. We can bless people in our relationships. And we're hardwired for that. Okay? Dominion rule, personhood, focus on gender, relationships. So let me bring back to our passage and then we'll kind of move to wrap things up. Only once there is human community and relationship with Adam and Eve in communion with God. Notice that vertical horizontal. Does God say very good? That's when very good comes, and then he rests. Only then. I hope you guys have read The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. Fantastic. Fantastic. I believe it came from a speech initially. I'm going to read a little bit from that. And he's talking about the Imago Dei. Okay? So stick with me here. We're going to wrap this soon. The load or the weight or burden of my neighbor's glory, that's the Imago Dei, should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it. Good? Okay. And the backs of the proud will be broken. He's already got it. I'm already hooked. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. He's talking about that glory. To remember that the dullest, the most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people. None. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, and civilization, those are mortal. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. That's good. We are far from ordinary. We, any human being, far from ordinary. We worship a three-person God who is sovereign, a God who rules, exercises dominion. His personhood, he's not just this force. He's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who is relational to his core. Otherwise, why does he create us? Why does he seek us out through the centuries? Why does he redeem us? Why does he love us at all? So God puts so much glory in us. And while the world, the flesh, and the devil will mar that and will disfigure that and take a shot at it, uh, the Imago Dei, it cannot be destroyed. I'll take that to my grave. It can't happen. God's fingerprints, his handiwork on each of us, is they're just that blazing, they're just that glorious, just that enduring in every single human being. I'm going to close here. So this is one of those sermons. I, do, I mean, every time I come to Trinity Sunday, it's like, where do you land with that? <laughs> That's a lot. And there are a lot of different directions to go on Trinity Sunday to talk about God. So I want to take those three areas and just kind of invite all of us to say, how am I doing with that? And I'm going to give you some handles that I hope make that easier. How am I doing with that? These are areas that you can always use as a diagnostic tool for your heart. Always. So I'm going to take those three areas. Hopefully you remember them. So let me give you some 
common to me. Dominion and rule, okay? Everyone has dominion over something. doesn't mean you have to have a little kingdom or be a king or a queen. I just mean, what are your places of influence in your life? That may literally be a kingdom, but I don't know if that any of you own anything in that way, right? What are your places of influence? I think this, the question here is, am I being a good steward of the slice of life God has given me? Am I being a good steward of what God has given me? And it all looks different for each one of us in our spheres of influence. Am I being proactive? Because dominion and rule implies you're not passive. You're not on autopilot. You're not just letting life happen to you. So I think this, I think this uh, dovetails into missional work. Not just as a church, but as individuals. Are you living a sort of missional life? You know what I mean? Your home can be a powerful place to bless people with. That's part of your dominion, your rule. Invite somebody into your home, feed them a good meal, uh, love on them, it'll change them. Do it in Jesus' name. So dominion and rule, and I being a good steward of what God has given me. Influence, resources, everything. Does that make sense? Tracking? Okay. So that's one, that's one way to think about that. Personhood. So you're a unique man, or you're a unique woman made in God's image. God doesn't make clones. So you're all kind of unique, original prototypes. He doesn't desire for you to be a clone. I don't understand the New Testament, the descriptions of the body, if that is the case. All these different parts. Uh, no, God does not want clones. St. Irenaeus says, the, the glory of God is a man, and I'm going to say, or woman, fully alive. So you were born to be an icon of Jesus in a dark world. So burn. Burn brightly. Shine. Uh, and ask yourself, am I willing to stand out because of that? Because some of us aren't. Some of us are like, ah, you know, and I, geez. I mean, there are things that embarrass me, and I'm not willing to do that, but I have to go, okay, God, you made me this way. Am I going to own that? And I'm going to stand in that. So someone is going, will you own who God made you to be? And I think that's the stuff of calling. And that is another sermon. Not for today. So personhood. You're unique. You're not a clone. God made you that way. You're going to burn brightly and be an icon and stand out. What's your calling? I think it's in there. Lastly, relationships. I think this, frankly, is the easiest one to assess. If the first two areas, you're like, ah, I don't, I don't connect with that, I don't get that. How are your relationships? Simple. Um, do you love others as Jesus loved you? Do you treat people as image bearers? Whether or not they're your brother and sister in Christ or not, do you treat people as an image bearer? Not ordinary, as C.S. Lewis would say. Um, are you isolated? Are you disengaged or hiding from God and others by your own choice? Something to think about. Or are you addicted to relationships, demanding they fulfill you? Again, the two extremes. Those are things that come from brokenness and sin. So how are your relationships? Uh, in your families, right? Uh, here, King of Kings, uh, at work, your friendships, all that, how are they? That's an easy one to do the check engine light on and go, how's it going? <laughs> how's it going in my heart? How are my relationships? Do I treat others as image bearers? Do I honor them that way? Do I give to them? Do I love them? Or, yeah, I think you get my point. So here's we're going to close. Yes, we are going to close. Uh, I'm going to let John Dunn pray for us again. This is going to be our prayer, and I'm going, to, I'm going to add some language here to make it specific to us. So batter our hearts, three-person God, for you is yet but knock. 
breathe, shine, and seek to mend that we may rise and stand. Overthrow us and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make us new. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.